Many hospitals in Canada have implemented a care pathway called Enhanced Recovery After Surgery, or ERAS, which is meant to improve patient outcomes after surgery. Many different disciplines of surgery now use this approach, but how easy is it to implement? And how much should other practitioners, such as primary care doctors, know about it? I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal, here to tell us about ERAS, its benefits and challenges, and involvement of a multitude of healthcare practitioners, are two of the authors of a review article published in CMAJ. Dr. Greg Nelson is Chief of Gynecologic Oncology at the Tom Baker Centre in Calgary, Alberta, and Dr. Alon Altman is a gynecologic oncologist with Cancer Care Manitoba and Associate Professor at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg. Welcome, Greg and Alon. Thank you. Greg, could you start by telling us a bit about who you are? Yes, so I'm the Section Chief of Gynecologic Oncology at the Tom Baker Cancer Centre in Calgary, and I'm also the surgical lead for ERAS Alberta. And uh, I'm also the secretary for the International ERAS Society, which is based in Sweden. Dr. Altman and I, together with uh, several other international enhanced recovery experts, wrote the original um, ERAS Society guidelines for gynecologic oncology that were published in 2016. My name is Alon Altman. I'm uh, an associate professor at the University of Manitoba. Um, I'm also the uh, program director for obstetrics and gynecology and the uh, National Director of Education for the Society of Gynecology of Canada. Um, and then uh, Greg and I are also the co-chairs of the uh, National Community of Practice for ERAS in uh, Gynecology. Can you give our listeners an overall sense of what the enhanced recovery after surgery approach means and what it's meant to achieve? Sure. So enhanced recovery after surgery, I think the, the name actually discusses it in full. The, the point of this uh, initiative is uh, an evidence-based multidisciplinary approach to post-operative care uh, in any surgical patient. The idea is that the evidence is reviewed, the uh, best care and best practices are uh, looked at and evaluated, uh, recommendations are made, and then the care of any given patient um, is enhanced and optimized based on those care pathways. Um, the idea behind it is to decrease uh, the stress of surgery, decrease the physiologic stress and the mental stress for the patient, get them back to a normal physiology as fast as possible, thereby getting the patient feeling more normal, decreased pain, having less nausea, um, getting home and getting back to normal as, as fast as possible. This idea applies to every surgical patient, um, and uh, the idea is that we get this activated and, and mobilized in every patient in every hospital, ideally. So I remember several decades ago, family members going to hospital and staying in hospital for ages and ages. Um, I expect this is a relatively new concept, but maybe not so new. Can you give us some idea of the history of this approach? Sure, yeah. So historically within surgical care, uh, there's been a number of clinical practices that have, you know, claimed to uh, improve outcomes for patients undergoing major surgery. These include examples like prolonged fasting, uh, the so-called NPO after midnight rule, uh, mechanical bowel preparation, 
use of nasogastric tubes, uh, delayed introduction of feeding after surgery. And so while these practices have been long held as part of, you know, essentially surgical dogma, they're in fact not supported by uh, high-level evidence and have negative consequences such as dehydration and prolonged hospital stay. And so Dr. Henrik Kellett, who is a Danish colorectal surgeon, he was actually one of the first to challenge these practices uh, in the late 1990s and reported on a different model of care that he called fast-track surgery, where they in fact emphasized a multimodal approach to recovery, uh, including things such as regional anesthesia, uh, active mobilization, uh, and reducing ileus. And so, in fact, his team was the first to show that patients undergoing sigmoid resection were discharged just two days after surgery. Now, at the same time, uh, in the early 2000s, a team of European surgeons led by Dr. Oli Lundquist uh, were working on an enhanced recovery program where their emphasis was on modifying the metabolic response to surgery, uh, much like Dr. Altman was mentioning. And so then this effort formed the basis of the Enhanced Recovery After Surgery program, which is essentially now a global perioperative initiative involving many different surgery types. Alon, you mentioned the approach to enhanced recovery beginning preoperatively, and I can tell that you're in, in clinic while we're speaking today. So let's start there. What are the preoperative components of ARS? Sure. Yeah, well, let's go through that. And uh, the 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 noise is definitely because there's people walking around me here. So, um, preoperatively, you know, uh, it all starts with preoperative counseling. And I think the biggest thing that we've noticed for preop ERAS is expectations. As you'd mentioned previously, people had said patients would be in hospital for a week, or they would expect to uh, not eat or drink for several days, or they would expect to be in bed with a Foley catheter for several days. And so part of the, the first steps is the preoperative counseling for the expectations. The expectations that the patient will be up and moving the day of surgery, to the expectations that you will be eating and drinking rapidly, the expectations that you will only be in hospital for two to three nights. Um, so a lot of that counseling comes from clinics, from uh, nursing, from uh, physician visits beforehand, uh, but it also boils down to the primary care physician because a lot of the times, you know, the patient sees the specialists or the surgeons and they have uh, counseling time and, and they have handouts and, and information for the patients. Uh, but they go back to their family doctors looking for more information and confirmation of what what we've said. Um, the other big points preoperatively are uh, smoking and alcohol use. Uh, ERAS recommends stopping this four weeks ahead of time. Uh, obviously, this is difficult for patients to just stop, and therefore uh, it's it's imperative for the primary care practitioners to help with uh, withdrawal from alcohol, appropriate uh, appropriate care for this. Um, trying to stop smoking, they may need medications or nicotine patches or prescription or counseling with regards to this. Um, I, you know, treating any uh, abnormalities of, of uh, blood work or uh, looking into uh, abnormalities on chest x-rays and EKGs prior to surgery. Um, Greg had talked about avoiding a bowel prep, so trying to, you know, reinforce with the patients that this is okay uh, and the purposes of this is to decrease dehydration and electrolyte abnormalities. Um, and then nutritional counseling and assessment, making sure the patient is optimal from a nutritional standpoint preoperatively, um, whether this be supplementing their nutrition for a week or 10 days uh, prior to surgery, carbohydrate loading. And like I said, a lot of this 
we certainly talk about in clinics, but when the patient comes to see the specialist and you only have an hour with them and then you don't see the patient and then until surgery, um, the family doctors, the nurse practitioners, or whoever the patient deems as their primary practitioner uh, plays a huge role in getting the patient ready for surgery. Alon, do you find that sometimes patients have very fixed ideas about what uh, their preoperative routine should be based on previous experience, perhaps, and that when you tell them that they can eat up until a certain time, they may think that they've misheard you? Absolutely. Uh, people I see all the time, you know, we we give them counseling for ERAS in clinic and and they will oftentimes tell me, well, no, my doctor said I'm going to be in the hospital for seven days or or my mother had a hysterectomy and she was in hospital for seven days. Um, or no, my doctor said that I, I couldn't eat or drink anything until I pass gas. Or uh, like all of these have been brought up by patients that I was told this or I've seen this done in my aunt, my mother, my cousin, and therefore that's what they expect. So it's really about changing the mindset, not only of physicians, but also of patients and all healthcare workers that are giving advice to those patients, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's the mindset of uh, the, not just the patients and the family doctors, but preoperative anesthesia clinics, anesthesiologists. Um, it's changing the entire culture around surgery and what is normally expected and what should be expected. Greg, what are the intraoperative components that help enhance recovery? So what happens during surgery um, is primarily under the control of the anesthesiologist and the surgeon. And so if we break it down into those two components, from an anesthesiology standpoint, uh, there's two main things um, that the anesthesiologist looks at within an enhanced recovery program, and those are maintaining normal temperature, which we call normothermia, and then maintaining normal fluid balance, which we call uh, euvolemia. Hypothermia can occur, of course, during surgery uh, when uh, you get suppression of normal temperature regulation, uh, and this can, uh, you know, essentially you can get exposure to uh, a cold environment, uh, exposure to cold intravenous fluids. And so within enhanced recovery, uh, techniques to achieve normothermia include increasing the room temperature. Uh, we use forced air warming blankets and also warmed IV fluids. Uh, in terms of maintaining normal fluid balance, this is very, very critical um, as providing, you know, insufficient fluids during surgery can be harmful and result in kidney injury. On the flip side, uh, providing too much fluid can result in heart failure, bowel edema, ileus, and post-op nausea. Um, what we know is that in high-risk patients, the use of uh, techniques such as goal-directed fluid therapy um, have been shown to be beneficial, but are generally accepted that this is likely not required uh, in fit uh, patients undergoing uncomplicated surgery within an ERAS protocol. Uh, from a surgeon standpoint, um, essentially we always try to perform excellent surgical technique, that's, uh, that's a given, uh, but we also want to avoid doing things like using nasogastric tubes uh, and peritoneal drains whenever possible. Nasogastric tubes basically are not recommended because they are associated with uh, post-operative pneumonia and are not associated with a reduction in uh, opening of the wound or opening of the anastomosis. Uh, and then peritoneal drains, uh, you know, surgeons historically have placed these within the surgical bed uh, for monitoring. But when we actually look at the evidence for this, 
this practice has not been shown to uh, prevent leaks or improve outcomes. That's interesting. And I know I practice anesthesiology and I know that the movement from the intraoperative to the postoperative period, if it is a seamless one, um, recovery is better. So what are the post-op considerations that we should be thinking about following surgery? Well, like uh, Greg alluded to, uh, part of it is uh, the uvolemia, so keeping the fluids balanced, not overloading uh, the patient or particularly drying the patient. Um, uh, as we mentioned earlier, other things that uh, that are new, I guess, would include active mobilization, so getting the patient up and out of bed, yeah, even the day of surgery. Uh, we recommend a couple hours the day of surgery and then six hours every day after that. Um, feeding the patient early. Uh, so there have been lots of studies showing that you can start feeding right away with uh, clear fluids and then a standard diet. Um, and even in uh, gynae oncology, we've, uh, we've started using a standard uh, diet immediately the day of surgery, um, uh, trying to supplement with a high-protein diet. So this, is, uh, this kind of compares surgery to sport and, you know, the, the elite athletes and, and the uh, similar physiologic stress that they face. And then other things, uh, you know, like Greg had said, not using nasogastric tubes, not using abdominal drains, prophylaxing against uh, blood clots, both in the hospital and for uh, an extended period afterwards, so up to four weeks after surgery. Um, and then combining with anesthesia to control pain and nausea better, uh, trying to avoid uh, opioids if you can. So that may include uh, tap blocks. I know some centers in the U.S. are using lipo liposomal bupivacaine and, and other novel uh, therapies to try to decrease epidurals, decrease opioids, uh, and get the patient up and around quicker. So some things that I just want to focus on there. What jumps out for me is that this is a real team effort. Can you comment on the, the need for um, a multidisciplinary team to work together? Sure. Um, so I think, you know, when we look at the ERAS program, and we look at you know what would be um, what, what would be some of the keys to success, and and really I would say that that focuses on um, teamwork. So so one of the key things is around assembling um, a successful ERAS team. So traditionally, um, as clinicians, um, we work within our own silos, uh, and we don't really consider how what we do within our own silo affects those you know uh, down the pathway, and so. ERAS is really about working together for the patient who uh, actually travels um, across all the silos. And so um, when we look to develop a uh, ERAS team, we want to ensure that it's multidisciplinary so that it draws from a, across a spectrum of expertise. And, and at minimum, uh, the ERAS team should include, obviously, uh, surgeons, uh, anesthesiologists, nurses, pharmacists, nutritionists. And um, basically, this team um, comes together to review how the program is working, and ultimately, you know, iterates towards uh, improvements as you as you look to see how well you are uh, complying to the the pathway or not. So I love what you were saying about the patient being the common thing that travels through the silos. And the other observation that I had is that this is a very patient centered approach. It's all about optimizing function for the patient and getting the patient back to normal or as close to normal living as soon as possible. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a very good description. Um, I think the the basis of ERAS is very patient-centric, and therefore uh, everybody around the patient um, works together to to optimize everything for the patient. So, absolutely. My third observation is that um, although there are elements that you've talked about, like not having a nasogastric tube and um, and early feeding, I expect that different kinds of surgeries approach these things very slightly differently, that they're common themes, but you have to tweak it to your situation. And, and you are gynecologic surgeons, um, so you have that focus in your work. However, bowel surgeons might have a very slightly different focus. So, yeah, I mean, basically uh, what happens uh, with every ERAS program is that each program theoretically is based on an ERAS guideline, uh, which looks at all the components for that particular surgery, whether it be colorectal surgery, gynecologic oncology surgery, uh, lung surgery. So it looks at all the things that we do for those particular patients within the preoperative intraoperative and postoperative phases. And so there is quite a lot of uh, overlap uh, in terms of, you know, things such as patient engagement, patient counseling, feeding the patient, uh, mobilizing the patient, focusing on uh, narcotic sparing, multimodal analgesia. But certainly, as you allude to, within each one of those surgical disciplines, there will be you know, variations, but usually those are according to the surgery itself. So as we're expanding ERAS into other surgery types, uh, particularly outside of the abdomen, uh, into things like head and neck cancer surgery, um, and now also into cardiovascular surgery, there obviously will be different nuances within that program of care. But again, some of those main components of ERAS, which we really look at in terms of um, ensuring that there's the patient has a normal fluid status, minimizing narcotics, uh, feeding early, uh, and active mobilization. Those are some central tenets of ERAS that uh, should apply across uh, all disciplines. Yeah, and just to, just to add to that, and I've noticed this, I'm sure Greg has as well, that there are surgeons that you know have certainly started ERAS, but they still classify people as ERAS patients or not ERAS patients. Um, and I try to break that idea uh, and, and clarify that every patient is an ERAS patient. Every patient, we should be doing whatever we can to enhance their recovery. Now, that may not mean that every component is relevant in every situation, but it, the idea is you look at all the components and you look at your post-operative care for the patient and you optimize whatever you can um, and not just fall back to um, your standard thinking just because that's the way it was. So I think every patient, you definitely customize this, but every patient that's having surgery, we should be aiming to enhance their recovery. So looking at the, from the point of view of the healthcare system, we need to know if this kind of approach is effective. What can you tell us about monitoring and studies of um, effectiveness and cost-effectiveness of this approach? Yeah, it's a great question. 
You know, uh, when we look at the literature, uh, there's now multiple stu studies showing uh, benefit of ERAS implementation in terms of uh, improvements of uh, what we would describe as, you know, classic clinical outcomes, you know, things such as length of stay, reduction in complications. Um, because the ERAS program started in colorectal surgery, uh, the majority of these studies are in colorectal, and, you know, they show an average reduction of length of stay of um, about two days, decrease in complications uh, in the neighborhood of uh, 30 to 50 percent. And locally, we actually performed um, a number of health economic evaluations of our ERAS programs in both colorectal surgery and gynecologic oncology in Alberta. And we actually found that for every $1 invested in ERAS, this actually resulted uh, in a return on investment of uh, anywhere between 2 and $4. When we look at monitoring, you know, one of the most important things for teams to understand is that they must audit their uh, compliance to the uh, ERAS guidelines, to the ERAS care elements, and also look at their clinical outcomes. Some of the studies that we see in the literature that have actually claimed that, you know, be, you know, ERAS may not work or there's no benefit, when you actually look closely at those studies, look at their protocols, you can see that they're actually not reporting or measuring their compliance. And so you could, you could make the argument that they don't actually know what their intervention is in their study. And so now there's a number of different ways to audit compliance uh, and clinical outcomes for your ERAS program. Uh, there's audit programs that are available through the ERAS Society, uh, but you can actually develop your own audit system locally. And, uh, you know, I would emphasize that the most important thing that you're doing is auditing uh, your data and not necessarily what you use to do it. Greg, what about patient-reported outcomes? How do patients like this approach to surgery? That's a great question. Um, again, you know, historically, the ERAS uh, programs have been focused on the clinical outcomes. But, you know, what we're understanding is that patients absolutely uh, should be included uh, within the, the protocols, within the pathways. And, and it's not just about asking patients how they feel after the program. It's actually engaging with the patients while you're developing protocols, developing the pathways, and, and they can actually help tell us you know, if those protocol or pathway components uh, would be acceptable to patients. We are starting to incorporate actual um, measures, so patient-reported outcome measures or uh, patient-reported experience measures within our um, audits. Um, and, you know, I, I can tell you that certainly patients um, are really enjoying being part of the ERAS program. One of my own patients, um, as an example, this was a lady that I operated on. I've operated on a couple of times. Uh, in both cases, a similar major surgery. Um, but interestingly, within the first surgery that I did that was not on an ERAS program, um, you know, she had sort of thought that, you know, her recovery was not, um, not ideal. And then in the second surgery that was very similar, where we did have an ERAS program, uh, one of her main observations was that she uh, felt so much better. You know, she was allowed to have a, a full meal the night before. Uh, we uh, avoided narcotics uh, postoperatively. We were able to feed her right away. The catheter came out and, you know, she was really, really happy with the program. She felt that the recovery in the second surgery uh, was so, so much better. So I think in the end, um, for patients, they're really enjoying this and this makes all our effort uh, worthwhile. Can you tell us if there are any unanswered questions about this approach to surgery? Any aspects that you know could be improved on and you don't know how to improve them yet? 
Yeah, sure. Um, so there's, you know, anytime you're doing research and you're, you're, you have evidence-based guidelines, there's always questions that are still unanswered or questions that um, are, are changing. And, and the, you know, the ideal guideline will keep up with these changes and have updates and, and continue to change as, uh, as the research uh, develops. And I think that's a very important part to any ERAS uh, protocol or guideline that, that you put in place. Um, so questions that we currently have, uh, you know, things like uh, when is the optimal timing of uh, catheter removal, for example? Uh, you know, there's some studies in gynecology where you, we show that six hours is is uh, is a good time frame. So we've been doing this, and and even in patients with epidurals, uh, there's now uh, good evidence that you can take out their catheters uh, post-op day one, and that urinary retention doesn't. Uh, doesn't seem to increase, but can we can we remove them even earlier? I, I think is a question that that remains unknown. Um, what's the ideal timing and agents for uh, uh, venous thromboembolism or blood clot? We're currently using low molecular weight heparins, but with the advent of uh, direct oral anticoagulants or DOACs, um, you know, is is there a role for using this for prophylaxis and extended prophylaxis? We currently don't know. Um, is uh, is extended prophylaxis necessary for minimally invasive procedures? Uh, there's some evidence in colorectal laparoscopy that there is a benefit uh, versus in gynecology. There's some evidence that there is no benefit. So we're still um, unclear on this. Um, the ideal um, combinations for analgesia and antiemetics in the post-operative period. Uh, how do we decrease the opioids as much as we can? Um, how do we avoid epidurals as much as we can? What, what's the ideal combination of antiemetics? We know that, uh, for example, at my center, we've switched from metoclopramide uh, and use uh, halperidol a lot more, and we've noticed a, a significant improvement. But but there's so many agents, and what combination and what timing um, obviously remains a big question. Um, other questions that have come up are uh, for bowel prep. You know, in gynecology, we don't recommend a bowel prep routinely because of dehydration and electrolyte abnormalities. However, in colorectal surgery, there is ongoing discussions about oral antibiotics combined with mechanical bowel prep, and, and uh, there's some evidence that this uh, is better. However, it's unclear whether it's the oral antibiotics that's the improvement or whether it actually needs to be combined with a mechanical bowel prep. Uh, it's quite clear that mechanical bowel prep alone is not beneficial, but uh, how to combine it and uh, what antibiotics and what timing um, remains a, a huge question in uh, both uh, bowel surgery and uh, oncology surgery. So the questions uh, are, are are never ending, and I'm sure there's there's more that are coming. And Greg could probably think of others that I haven't thought of, but uh, it's a constantly evolving field, um, and so the questions will will continue to evolve with it. I think just from a general perspective, when we look at evidence uh, within enhanced recovery after surgery, as Alon indicates, um, this is a continuous process. So um, once you have a guideline, once you have a protocol in place, um, it is very important for the ERAS team to continue to examine the evidence that exists within the literature and then you know look to see if there are any practice-changing studies um, that would impact your protocol. So, so you know, the 
ERAS evidence, it's, it's a dynamic process. It's, you know, constantly evolving, but that's really the whole key to ERAS, which is to constantly be uh, implementing evidence-based surgical care. Now, in your article, Greg, you talk about um, some challenges and how to overcome them when you're trying to implement an ERS program. Uh, we've talked a bit about how you need to work with a multidisciplinary team and involve patients, etc. But what are the key aspects to successful implementation of ERAS? Yeah, so, you know, this comes back to really looking within to your ERAS team. And so it also centers on when we talked about audit. So what we recommend essentially is that when you are auditing uh, your data, and this actually gives you the information about what is working well within the program, what is not working well within the program. And so it could be at your particular uh, site within your particular surgery type. It's possible that some of the components within the preoperative program, such as carbohydrate loading, um, or you know, within the uh, postoperative program, such as uh, mobilization or avoiding narcotics, it's possible that through your audit, that your team is able to identify that those are areas of um, low compliance. And so then what happens is when you meet as a team, you come up with um, concrete action plans that are targeted towards those low um, areas of compliance or those areas of low compliance. And then you come up with a, you know, a solution or a, a game plan to address that. And so then you would implement that particular action plan and then subsequently uh, two or three months down the road you then audit again uh, and then hopefully what you're seeing is that you're seeing um, improvement or increase in compliance to those particular elements and then theoretically increased compliance uh, should translate to improved uh, clinical outcomes. So again it's really about using your data coming together as a multidisciplinary team. And in some cases, if it's an intraoperative component, then, you know, we're leaning more on our anesthesia colleagues to uh, to help with that particular aspect. If it's around mobilization, well, obviously, you need nurses, you know, frontline nurses to really help with getting patients up and moving out of bed. And so, again, in that circumstance, we would be, then be looking more towards our nursing colleagues to help with, with those elements. So that's really what it's all about. It's about teamwork. And a cyclical reevaluation, I suppose, and course correction based on the data that you collect. That's great. It's actually been wonderful to talk to you about this today, and I've learned so much. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. I've been speaking with Dr. Greg Nelson, Chief of Gynecologic Oncology at the Tom Baker Cancer Center in Calgary, Alberta, and Dr. Elon Altman gynecologic oncologist with Cancer Care Manitoba and associate professor at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg. To read the review article they co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app, and let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening. <laughs>